Welcome to Dem Talks, Our Stories, Our Voices, created by the Dementia Carers Campaign Network, a carer advocacy group supported by the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. I'm your host, Judy Williams, and when I'm not podcasting, I'm an advocacy engagement and participation officer at the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland, and I look after the Dementia Carers Campaign Network, known as the DCCN. The topic of our episode today is being an accidental carer and your identity as a carer. And I'm delighted to welcome Danielle Lennon, a member of the Dementia Carers Campaign Network, who cared for her mother. Pamela Laird, entrepreneur and beauty expert, whose father was diagnosed with dementia in 2016. And Dr. Michelle Kelly, Associate Professor in Psychology at the National College of Ireland. You're all very welcome today. And I'm going to come to you first, Danielle. Hi, Danielle. Hi, Judy. Danielle, you cared for your mother, Caroline, who was diagnosed with dementia in 2022. And I know that sadly your mom passed away last year. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Yeah, sure. So um, mom was originally diagnosed with a mild cognitive impairment in March 2021. Um, what happened, she had a car accident, very minor. She didn't hurt herself or anything. And she had had a little bit of a fall out the back garden. And I suppose I was I was just a little bit worried there was something going on. I had a good feeling. So I rang her GP, told me to bring her to A&E and just get her checked out. So at the time, then they said that one side of her, her brain was slightly smaller than the other side. So they diagnosed her initially with a mild cognitive impairment and suspected cancer. So two months after that, then she she was confirmed to have cancer. And then nine months later, in January 2022, she was diagnosed with advanced dementia then at that point. So she'd obviously had quite a turbulent year with the cancer. Um, In those nine months, she had heart attack, chemotherapy and radiation. She'd sepsis twice and multiple infections. So I suppose that's probably kind of contributed to, to the advanced dementia diagnosis then in January 2022. My goodness, what a what a very short period to have yeah. so much happening. Yeah. That must have been a real shock for you. Absolutely. I mean, she was pretty healthy all her life. There wasn't a bother on her. And then this all kind of came at the one time. But I suppose looking back on it now, I lived with her. So I think there was probably some symptoms before that. But I think I was kind of just growing with the changes. And as well as that with COVID, it was very hard. I was kind of making excuses for some of the, the behaviours. Like, I mean, she was kind of withdrawn a little bit and... She was she wasn't participating in conversations and I was thinking maybe she's just a little bit down or she's a little bit lonely or whatever it might have been. I remember at one time she I asked her what, why she wasn't participating in the conversations and she told me that she couldn't hear correctly. So I went and got a hearing aid. So I was kind of it was like firefighting all along the symptoms. But other people from the outside looking in kind of noticed it a little bit more than I would have because I was living with her, I think, you know. Yeah. And prior to that, Danielle, can you tell us a little bit about what your mum was like? Yeah, she's. I mean, she's fantastic. She's an amazing mother. Um, I say she's, <laughs> she still is. Yeah. But um, so there's five of us. She loved us all unconditionally. She um, she worked all her life, raised the five children. She had a fantastic sense of humor. She loved going to bingo. She was never late for work. She's always an hour early for work. I'd be like, Mom, you don't need to get up at six o'clock in the morning to be in work for eight. But she'd be, um, she was really time conscientious. But she was absolutely amazing. Fantastic mother, really mm. was. She sounds lovely. And what a lovely description of her. Thank you for sharing that with yeah. us. And Danielle, because it all happened so quickly, and as you said, you were living with your mother, at what stage of your caring journey did you think, I'm a carer? 
Well, I suppose, I mean, people would describe me and my mum. We were like husband and wife. <laughs> I don't know who took on which role now, but we, we were like husband and wife. But um, we lived together for 30 years. 20 of those was just the two of us. So I think for me, I was kind of looking at it as I'm I'm just her daughter and, and I'm just helping my mum who's ill. And, you know, that's the way I looked at it. I don't think there was a particular point. But looking back, I, I think of kind of probably September, October 21, Mam had gone through some of her chemo. She had had sepsis then. And I remember picking up, picking her up from the hospital at one point. She had been in there for about three weeks and she had been in three different hospitals. And I picked her up and I remember the porter bringing her out and she was so frail and vulnerable. And I remember I was so scared even to take her in the car. I was like, oh God, like, can I do this? You know, am I capable of giving her what she needs? So I think it was at that point I knew, you know, she wasn't going to go back to the way she was all along. I had had hope mm. and I believed like, I mean, she was like Lazarus, you know, she'd, she'd have sepsis and they told me she was the sickest person in the hospital. And then a week later she was out and I was like, you know, she's just fighting everything. She's not letting anything overcome her like, you know, so. But I think at that point I knew there was no going back. She was never going to go back to the way she was. So I think it was then kind of, you know, probably September, October 2021, I realized then that my my role had changed and I had a lot more responsibility at that point, you know. Right. OK. And did anyone ask you to be a carer or was it just assumed it would be you because you lived with your mother or was it a conscious decision you made? It's funny. This is a conversation I had with my mom, you know, throughout the years. Some of her aunts and uncles would have had Alzheimer's or dementia. So the conversation did come up. And I mean, it was my mom's biggest fear. It really was. And I had always said to her, I look after you, don't worry, uh, you know, I'll, I'll make sure you're OK. And she said, I trust you, I trust you, you know. So I was the closest one to her. It was always going to be the case. Like I said, we were like husband and wife. I wouldn't trust anyone else to look after her because I knew I knew her best and I knew that I could care for her best. So, you know, it was never going to be anything other than that. And I mean, even if my mom didn't get sick, I always said I was never going to live separate to her. She would always live with me, whether I bought a new home and moved her in or whether I stayed with her. So it was always going to be the case that I was I was going to look after. Oh, that's lovely. It sounds like you had a really, really special relationship. Absolutely. With yeah. Mom. Yeah. Yeah. How lovely to have that, even though I know, you know, it must be very difficult for you now talking about this. Um. So, Danielle, you've gone through all the points of the caring journey, the diagnosis, the caring, the loss of your loved one. Knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to yourself at the start of your caring journey? So I think I would tell myself that I'm only human. I'm going to make mistakes and, and that's OK. You know, I think when you know better, you do better. Obviously, looking back now, I wish I knew a lot, an awful lot more. It was very hard at the time because I suppose we weren't really clear on a diagnosis. You know, it was like, oh, it's a mild cognitive impairment. It's possibly dementia, maybe not dementia. You know, it's delirium or it's moderate dementia. And then it's like, no, she's too high functioning. So it was so, so difficult to kind of care for someone when you really didn't have a definitive diagnosis. And I was like, you know, do I correct her when she's wrong and, you know, talking about things that are incorrect or do I do I, you know, leave her like do I reorientate or do I not reorientate her? So it was really, really hard. But I think, like I said, when you know better, you do better. So I would definitely tell myself I'm only human. You know, people make mistakes, you learn from them and you do better the next time. And also, I would say, take any help you can get, do all your research that you possibly can. And no, you're not on your own. There's people out there in worse situations or similar situations to you. 
So, you know, definitely look for help and take it when it's offered. Mm, that's really good advice. And actually, sometimes it's very hard to take help, isn't God, it? Yeah. yeah. Did you get any help, any external help? Yes, we had a home care package kind of later in the year. But I mean, it was quite difficult with, with my mom. First of all, she didn't like people coming into the house, strangers coming into the house. And then she didn't want anybody doing any personal care or anything like that. She she would only allow me to do it. And even that was a battle on some days, you know, so they would come in and kind of just have to sit with her for the hour. But then there was nearly like because they were different carers coming in, it was quite hard for her. She's like, these are strangers coming into my home. Like, you know, so I was having to explain about my mom's personality. So I was taking like 15, 20 minutes when they were coming into the house and saying, this is my mom. This is what she likes. This is what she doesn't like, you know, and then 20 minutes later and I just fly down the shop, get the messages and come back. So, you know, the help, it was help in one way just to give me the few minutes to fly down the shop or go for a quick walk. But it was it was quite stressful as well, having to kind of introduce her. And then, you know, sometimes the care weren't appropriate for my mom either. Mm. Like, you know, there was really young girls only out of school. And I'm like, you're dealing with someone here who has cancer and dementia and expected to care for them without proper training. So, yeah, it was quite difficult. I was really, you know, a sole carer with people just kind of coming in and sitting with her, okay. you know, on occasion. So. And you said, you know, if you knew more at the beginning, yeah. was, was was there anywhere you um, contacted to get advice? I actually done training with the Alzheimer's Society. So I done um, care training for people with dementia. I done that later in the year. So that was really, really helpful. But obviously finding the time even to yes. do that, I, I would have to nearly book in a family member and say, can you come up for an hour and sit with ma'am? But then she, if she knew I was in the house, she'd be coming up looking for me then and yeah. trying to come up to me. So that was even that was quite difficult. But I looked everywhere for help. Um, I really did. And I, I asked for help all the time. I took everything that was offered to me. Mm. <laughs> I done a lot of research online as well. I ordered books off Amazon and things like that to try and, you know, give myself some knowledge on how to best deal with her. Like, but still, I obviously didn't have that definitive diagnosis at the time. Mm. So I was kind of winging it a little bit, you know. That made it very difficult. Yeah. It sounds like you did an awful lot, though, and you were very, very proactive. And you mentioned the um, the care training there. That's the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland's um, family yeah. care training. Yeah. And I think you, you probably did it online. Then, I did. did you? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I think now they're back to doing it in person and online, but certainly a very useful resource to have for yeah. family carers. Yeah, it was really, really useful, I suppose, as well as that seeing other people who were in similar positions to you, I, I definitely I didn't feel alone anymore. You know, I felt that there was other people the same as me out there. So it kind of made it a little bit easier for me. You know, I had felt really alone and then I done this. I was getting knowledge and I was meeting other people who were in the same situation. So that yeah. was really useful. That was very positive, as you say. Well, it sounds like you did an amazing job and I'm sure your mom is very proud of you looking down. I tried my best. <laughs> you, you certainly did. And I think probably it's a good time for me to give out the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland's helpline because that's where you would have maybe found the information yeah. about the family on the family care training. And that's 1-800-341-341. So thanks so much, Danielle, for sharing your story with us and um, for no being problem. with us today. Thanks, Judy. Thanks. So we're going to go to Pamela now. And hi, Pamela. Hi, Judy. Thanks so much for joining us today. And our listeners will probably know you from The Apprentice UK or from Dragon's Den Ireland, where you received offers of investment from three of the dragons. Well done on that for your beauty brand Moxie Loves. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, if you've watched The Apprentice, you might have seen me. Um, so I'm an entrepreneur. Definitely get that from both of my parents. 
my mum and my dad before he was diagnosed with dementia. They both had their own businesses. Um, so totally inspired by my upbringing. And I guess, yeah, I've been in the beauty industry a long time. I'm also a nail technician and I'm now in college full time just to throw a bit of extra work <laughs> my way. I'm doing an MBA out in Smurfist, which is great. I'm really, really loving it. Um, it's a really wow. great challenge. Um, and yeah, that's kind of me in a nutshell, I guess. I did The Apprentice in 2019 just before COVID hit and I was living in the UK for 12 weeks um, filming that, which is great. A really amazing opportunity and great fun. I came third, so didn't get well Lord Sugar's money. But yeah, I made pretty far compared to some of the other Irish contestants. So yeah, I feel really lucky. Um, for that opportunity. And yeah, I've been running my business ever since. I'm kind of on a pause now while I'm finishing the MBA. Just four months left to go. So nearly there, um, but really enjoying it. Great. You certainly like to stay busy then. Yes, I do. <laughs> I try, I try. And I think you've just had exams. I have yeah. my second semester exams. I, I don't have the results yet, Judy, but I hope the good foresight I'll have passed. Good. <laughs> yeah, oh, we hope you passed. do too. I'm sure you will. Thank you. Um, and Pamela, I understand your father, Sylvester, was diagnosed with dementia in 2016. Can you tell us about your father and about your mother? Because you mentioned the entrepreneurial spirit you yes. inherited from them. Definitely. So both my parents had their own business, as I mentioned. My dad had such a fantastic, interesting life. He used to be a stuntman um, for George Peppard and the A-Team. He's been in cars his whole life, whether it's stunt driving and eventually then he had his own car business. So um, cars were definitely in my family. Um, my mum when I was younger, I had two jobs. She worked in the bank and had her own beauty salon. So like that, I've grown up with really ambitious parents and I'm an only child, so very lucky um, to be totally inspired by both of them. And my mom, like that, extremely hard worker up until COVID actually was working full time and became an accidental carer um, through that process. So my dad deteriorated and it was necessary then for full time care. And so my mom retired earlier than she would have wanted to become his carer. Okay, okay. And how did that sort of journey, you were in London when this, no, you were in London just before Just this? before, yeah, that's right. Okay. I mean, it had started, you know, I think my dad didn't have the usual Alzheimer's dementia symptoms. It, it started, it's interesting to hear your story, Danielle, and just mobility issues, kind of falling, not the you know, TV, forgetting everybody's name, you know, mm. the typical symptoms that you associate. So when we were trying to get a diagnosis, it was like, well, my dad's a little bit older. And they said, well, look, you know, he's that age. And we were saying, that's not it. You know, he hand cut the grass in the garden with his scissors like oh a month goodness. ago. So, you know, we're not dealing with someone who looks like their age. So trying to get the diagnosis, eventually we managed to get a brain scan. And that is when we got it. And I don't know whether getting the diagnosis helped because you, you sort of go, Surely not, because you just imagine it to be a forgetful mm. uh, disease. And, and it's not always, it doesn't always present that way. So throughout the time, we've learned a lot about how it affects the person and more so probably how it affects the families. You know, that's something I've realized. My dad can often be blissfully unaware and extremely content okay. while, you know, the house is burning down, you know, around us as in it's very stressful for my mom. From my perspective, seeing her, you know, make that transition to carer, I think it definitely he deteriorated while I was away filming and I didn't quite realize how bad it was until I was kind of away. And then I came back and he didn't even notice that I'd been gone. So, mm. 
Yeah, I mean, he knew every day that I wasn't there, but that would just last the day. And then when I was home, it was like I never left. But yeah, so it's 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 been an interesting kind of few years, probably accelerated by COVID. Right. And as you said there, you noticed it more when you came back. And that's a little bit what you said, Danielle. Yeah. You weren't noticing the things as much because you were no. with your mom mm-hmm. every day. Yeah, I, I was living with her. So I was like my brother described it really well. He said, you're growing with her changes. And mm-hmm. I suppose I'm seeing her 24 hours a day. And I mean, 23 hours, she's fine, maybe. And then she might have one instant where she'd forget, you know, to turn off the cooker or something silly like that. And I was just excusing it then, like, you know. Yeah. Whereas, Pamela, you saw the change because you'd been away. So that must have been a little bit of a shock then for you. It was. And again, I think probably you come back and you jump straight back into it. But I think that the shock for me and probably could be echoed by a lot of families is my mom, you know, seeing her lose some of her identity mm. while becoming a carer, like doing something so amazing for my dad yeah. that I've no doubt he would do for her, that I would do for her and and vice versa. But to see her lose her identity was really difficult yeah. and her independence being lost, especially maybe while I was gone, as in I wasn't there to help her. And yeah, that was very difficult. OK, yes, I can understand. And I think maybe did your mom um contact the Alzheimer's Society. Did she do some training? She did, actually. She did the the same course. It was in person at the time and um, okay. it was before COVID. I think it was the end of 2019 and she found that really helpful. Again, I don't know whether it was the skills learnt on the course mm. or the community of people going through the very same thing. And at very different levels, you know, people can be diagnosed with dementia and it rapidly accelerates. You know, I guess some in some ways we're lucky. My dad still knows who we are, still knows who my mum is. And while there are other challenges, mm. you know, the contrast sometimes you can feel, oh gosh, maybe we are a little bit lucky to have to have him as he is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And Pamela, I know you're an ambassador for the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland and you've done a lot to support various campaigns for which we are very grateful. What prompted you to make the decision to speak publicly about caring for your loved one with dementia? I think it's really important and especially seeing how it directly affected my family and maybe the lack of people just talking about it. It's not the pink fluffy charity that you know everyone wants to buy the merch to go with it or you know there's a lot of stuff that surrounds certain charities that make it really attainable and people want to publicly support it which is fantastic but something like Alzheimer's and dementia people don't talk about and young people don't talk about it because it generally affects older people um, but the amount of families connected to the disease and how it affects them was what I thought was important because if it affects older people people often say oh kind of we won't think about that but how it affects younger people as part of families I thought was important to speak out about and that supporting the carers was what I thought was a really important way to discuss the disease and and try to just raise as much money as possible for something I thought was was really worthwhile. Mm, That's fantastic. And thank you so much for all you do. And I suppose that's the point of our podcast today is to try and raise awareness again and make people out there feel that, you know, there are other people going through this as well. So well done on all the work you've done, Pamela. And um, final question for you is how do you think being a carer for someone with dementia has influenced your life and your identity? Yeah, I mean, I think that I I definitely feel that it's made me really appreciative of time. You know, I absolutely did not listen to my dad's hundred stories as in detail as I wish that I had. And so now time with my mom, time with everybody, I really appreciate. And obviously, if I could go back and 
listen to how he planted the potatoes in the garden. You know, I wish <laughs> that I had. Um, and some of the stories are still there, but um, you don't realize that the person is gone. And while they are still there, seeing the detached nature of, of how they can become. So they're there, but they aren't. He's not my dad. I mean, obviously, he'll always be my dad, but he isn't my dad. He isn't my mom's husband. He's slightly somebody else. And every so often there's like a glimmer of who he was, whether it's a, a funny joke or something he says. But those moments are less and less as time goes on. So I think just from a personal point of view, it makes me really appreciate time mm-hmm. with loved ones. And I was obviously a teenager, a bratty teenager who probably should have listened more. There's probably nothing I can do about that. But if I were to say to anybody, you know, just time is really precious with your parents. And yeah, while he's still here, people don't realize that he's not really here. Yeah. If you don't know him, you know, so that's yeah. tough. That That's a lovely way of putting it, I suppose, about the time. I hadn't thought about it in that way, but that's really lovely. And do you think that it has influenced any of your decisions since then? Absolutely. And actually, again, listening to you, Danielle, talk about your mom and that you you would always want to be there. I think that's an unspoken thing between mom and I because she would be my best friend. She is somebody that I would always want to be with. And I think that even more so now it's really important for me. And I think that I definitely try and make a lot of time. My my boyfriend's fantastic and he helps. So mom and I can go for dinner, you know, getting her That's out great. and that time, I think is really important for her. I just want her to enjoy her life too, yeah. which I think is it's it's probably an impossible balance to fully get as a full time carer. But any chance that I can to remove her from the situation, even for a few hours, is, you know, I always try and do that. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much, Pamela, for sharing all that and for coming in today. Thank you. Hi, Michelle. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Judy. So, Michelle, can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and about your work as an associate professor in psychology and as a behaviour analyst? Yeah, so I'm a professor of psychology at the National College of Ireland. And so I teach undergraduate psychology to um, psychology students there. I also conduct research um, in the area of dementia. Um, I'm a mom of two as well, (laughs) two little boys, Dylan and Aaron. Um, The majority of my research does focus on working with people in the earliest stages of dementia. Um, I've been working with the Alzheimer's Society actually for about 10 years now, I think. We met about 10 years ago. Yeah, we did. And at the time, I was actually hired by the Alzheimer's Society and Trinity College. It was a collaborative position to look at early interventions for people with dementia. At that time, there really wasn't anything available. So there were there was a big push around early diagnosis. But there was this treatment gap then where early diagnosis just didn't really follow up with the appropriate kind of adequate interventions. Okay, so it sounds like a very busy life, Michelle, between your work and your two little boys, (laughs) etc. But you obviously have a really big interest in dementia then. Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, it came from, I suppose, just getting that opportunity to work with the Alzheimer's Society all those years ago. I was actually there when the Dementia Carers Campaign Network was was set up first um, and the Irish Working Group for People with Dementia. And it was just through meeting people and having conversations that I became really passionate about the necessity and the need for interventions, both for the person with dementia and for the caregivers. Um, I was then involved with setting up the Alzheimer Cafe in Glasnevin. um, And through that, again, just heard so many stories and, and really grew and developed that passion for working with and trying to improve the landscape in Ireland of interventions that are available. So I really wanted to focus on our look at more evidence-based work that's not 
from a medical model. So trying to look at things outside of the medical perspective, you know, what are types of psychosocial interventions that can be helpful for people that may even be comparable to the effects of some medications in some instances. And then that led me to my work with cognitive stimulation therapy and with, with cognitive rehabilitation as well. Brilliant. Wow. A lot of work there. And you, I know you have an interest, as you said there, about cognitive stimulation therapy and cognitive rehabilitation therapy, but you also provide training in it. Can you explain, first of all, what cognitive stimulation therapy is? Yeah, we'll call it CST for short, if that's okay, Yeah, because it's such a mouthful. Um, So CST is the most evidence-based intervention that is available for people with dementia. Um, And I think, you know, it, it always surprises me how little awareness there is about this. So I'm really trying to, you know, share the message with people about the availability, but also trying to ensure that there are a number of people in Ireland who are trained to be able to deliver this intervention. CST has been recommended by the World Alzheimer Report and by the NICE guidelines, which are clinical excellence guidelines, as as a very, very impactful intervention to help people in terms of improving cognitive function, communication, quality of life and general functional outcomes for people. Um, It's best suited to people in the earlier stages or more mild to moderate dementia, um, but can be helpful for people in the later stages as well. Um, So I deliver training, as you said, so I've trained about 360 people in Ireland, I think, to date to be able to deliver CST. But actually what we find is even though there are a large number of people trained, so to be able to facilitate, it's a group-based intervention. So it would be, the structure would be about five to eight people in a group, two facilitators, and it's just people with dementia in the group as well. Um, So we have, you know, that number of people trained to deliver this intervention in Ireland, but we are still seeing a bit of an implementation gap. So we're not seeing it as widely available as we would like. Um, So I've just recently gotten funding from the Irish Research Council to try to investigate why there's an implementation gap and to try to overcome that. You know, if we can find out what are the barriers, then hopefully we'll be able to improve implementation. My, I mean, it would be great if, you know, somebody goes to the GP, you know, they're flagged as having maybe a mild cognitive impairment or they get that diagnosis of dementia. And the GP says, here's a suite of things that are available Mm, to you. Here's the medication, but also here are all of the other things that can support you, both yourself and your family to be able to improve outcomes. I mean, I know dementia is a neurodegenerative condition and, you know, we're to expect that there can be, you know, there's going to be disimprovement over time. But at the same time, the the rate of of degeneration can be slowed, you know, and also the quality of life for the person and for their families can really be impacted on a day to day basis. So, you know, it could be a year or two or 10 years of very good quality of life or years of very poor quality of life. And that makes a massive difference. Mm, of course it does. And as you say, not just for the person with dementia, but for the family. And, and talking about that intervention in particular, if a person with dementia was receiving cognitive stimulation therapy or CST, as you say, could you maybe talk a little bit about what the carers and family members could do to support that therapy? Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably pros and cons to it. So one of the good things about that therapy is because it's group based, it's people with dementia all get together with trained facilitators. So it does provide an opportunity for the caregivers or the family members to maybe have an hour or two of respite. Um, Sometimes I think 
it's not suited to everybody because there are a lot of people who just would not want to take part in an intervention like that. And that's fine, too. There is another intervention that I'm interested in, which is cognitive rehabilitation, which is a one to one type of support where an, an occupational therapist or a psychologist could come into the home and work with the person and with their family members on a one to one basis. And it's about identifying ways to overcome difficulties within the home. So they're the two main interventions okay. that I'm that I'm interested in. And I think each of them suit different types of people. So it would be nice to have both available. We're working on another project actually to increase the availability of, of COG Rehab. Um, but for from a family caregiver perspective, I think it's about trying to think about, you know, or understanding what's happening within the intervention process and then maybe seeing if there are any ways that those types of things can be implemented within the home. You know, for CST, maybe there might be materials that could be taken home that could be reviewed with the person. But actually, as I consider that question, I mean, and from the perspective of the identity of the carer, it does raise the question, too, that if the person is receiving the intervention, And then if the family members are required to sort of support that intervention, you know, then are you a family member? Are you a carer? Are you a therapist? Does it almost Mm. produce, you know, more things to do, more on the to do list? So we're always mindful of that. And that's one of the things that we measure and assess when we're looking at these interventions. It's around caregiver burden. You know, the the aim shouldn't be, you know, if a family member is receiving or in receipt of a kind of a support, it shouldn't be something that causes more stress. And actually, I thought you made a great point as well when you were saying about the different caregivers that were coming in. Consistency and repetition is so important. So I think overall, there's a bit of work to be done about that model of where we're providing support to individuals. Is it actually a help or is it a hindrance? Mm. So with CST, it is designed to be a help. You know, it is designed to be something that if the family member didn't do anything in between, it should still be beneficial. Um, But I suppose, you know, if the family member or if the person with dementia was not in receipt of any of these types of interventions, the family could, I mean, I think it's about looking at what the person can do. So that's what we're always focused on. I mean, I know there is a lot of focus on what's lost, Mm -hmm. but I think we need to also focus on the fact that people can learn new things. They can learn new skills. So Alzheimer's or, you know, any disease associated with the symptoms of dementia impacts certain areas of the brain, but not the whole brain. And we know, you know, if you think about neuroplasticity, it means that the brain can adapt and change and cope with damage or loss in certain areas. So the brain is a very interesting, adaptable organ. And if there is a disease in a certain area, other areas, if they're stimulated, can maybe compensate to a certain degree. So I think ensuring or kind of encouraging people to keep the person with dementia as stimulated as possible is an important message and to understand that there are things that they can still do. Um, I think I've seen so many instances of in a very loving situation where maybe a family member says as soon as the diagnosis comes in, they will say, you don't have to do anything anymore. We will mm. look after everything. Don't worry about doing the shopping. Don't worry about the cooking. And that overhelping is so lovely because it comes from such a place of love. But actually what it does is it reduces the mental stimulation for the person with dementia and cause it's a, a huge to-do list then for the family mm. member. Yeah. So sometimes there might be a little bit of work at the outset around identifying what are the things that the person can still do. 
you know, changing or setting up the environment to try to ensure that the person can be as independent as possible. Um, and, and really thinking about that from the perspective of what can they do that maybe I can pull back a little bit and, and, and let them do that. So that would be the main thing. And then repetition and consistency, as I said, as well, huge. Um, and other things could be something like, you know, setting up the environment with reminders, prompts, having the post-it notes everywhere. Little things like you can get pictures that show the different stages of like brushing your teeth or dressing, those kinds of self-care routines. And I think the earlier that they're implemented, if the person is willing to have them implemented in the home, the earlier they're implemented and those things become habit, the better. Because then when things become a bit more difficult, if they're used to looking at those pictures and following that routine, for example, Mm -hmm. or if they have the signs on the presses or the sticker on the door saying, the front door saying, don't forget your phone or whatever it might be. Once they're there then and they're in in place, it, it can help then at a later stage. Yeah, that's great advice. And um, would you have any advice for someone about retaining their own identity while being a carer? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really tough one as well, because it it does take a bit of self-observation. So I think people need to think about what is my identity? You know, who am I? Because in any one, in any given context, your identity is different. So, you know, I'm a psychologist, a mother, a daughter, a sister. (laughs) There are so many things. But in a given context, one of those will be will be predominant. So, for example, if you're at home caring for your dad, let's say your caregiving identity is Mm. is dominant there. Um, But I think people need to have a think about, you know, if that is the only identity and it's overtaking all of the others, Mm. you know, if your self-identity as a friend, if you're not getting to experience that because you're not getting any time to socialize with friends, that can become problematic for self-identity. So maybe at the first point, I know it sounds a bit fluffy, but (laughs) self-observation, very kind of mindfully, but self-observation is good. And then maybe setting goals. So thinking about what what is it that I need to keep my own self-identity? Because that's different for everybody as well. And seeking out social support, as both of you have alluded to, is incredibly important just to feel that there's somebody else in the same boat. And that can help also. Um, there's a, a certain therapy that I that I really like. It's acceptance and commitment therapy, and it talks about two different types of self. So it's the self as content and the self as context. And if a person is having thoughts about so maybe a thought like I'm useless, I'm terrible at this, I can't do this, that self as content, and that would be where the person feels that those thoughts are fact. You know, I'm you know I, I'm not doing a good job. If you have a bad day, for example. Um, but we, with ACT therapy, it's trying to get people to think a little bit more flexibly and think of the self as context. So instead of thinking I am useless, thinking I am having the thought that I am useless. But, you know, as Danielle, as you alluded to earlier, at the end of the day, you can just evaluate and go, do you know what? Every day isn't going to be great. I'm having the thought that I am useless, but here's what went well today. Here's what did, here's what didn't go great. I'm human and I can learn from that experience. So really trying not to get fused with those negative self-evaluations can be helpful for retaining that sense Mm -hmm. of identity and sense of self. There's actually a good book. um, I don't normally recommend books, but you're saying as well about reading and stuff. So um, there's a good book on acceptance and commitment therapy, and it's very easy to read, um, non-jargony. It's called um, The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris. And it is just a good one for getting people to think about that sense of self and that sense of self in a certain context and how we can make sure that that's flexible. Mm. 
that's great advice and, and maybe people out there would like to to read that book. That's a great idea. When you mention about the identity and you're saying about, you know, one being dominant over the other, I suppose, as you said, when somebody's in a caring role, that is going to be their dominant identity. So maybe it goes back to the idea that Danielle said about accepting help mm-hmm. so that you can have the help so you can go out and do maybe some of the other things if if you can, if you're in a position to, um, you know, that feed your other identities. Would Would you suggest that accepting help is part of of that maybe yeah i would suggest that it's crucial it is so important to to accept help it's really difficult as well to accept help because exactly as you said you you, you think things like they i'm the only person that can do this right but and and the type of help can vary sometimes too um but yeah trying to reach out and trying to find maybe your tribe or the people that can help you in the way that suits your needs best and it does take a little bit of work which can be difficult too but absolutely if you want to retain that sense of self and your self-identity seeking help is crucial to that because that's the only way you will be able to go into a context where your role is now the friend Mm -hmm. or your role is whatever your job interest is um so absolutely seek can help and and the right kind of help can be difficult but sometimes any help is better than no help yes. as well. <laughs> yeah. And and you mentioned earlier on there about the Alzheimer cafe so seeking supports like that where there's social interaction where it's not just for the person with dementia that's interacting but also the carers and the families. The Alzheimer Cafe, I think, is one of the most wonderful concepts, and I've seen it time and time again have such a positive impact on people's lives. Mm. It's an opportunity for the family to go somewhere to socialise, but also be with the person with dementia, their loved one. It provides an opportunity for their loved one to be able to meet people in similar situations as them, but also the family members. Um, There's so many cafes around Ireland mm. now. I really do strongly recommend that people have a look. It's very casual as well. You know, there's no pressure. If you feel like I'm not ready to talk to anybody, you know, just go observe for a few minutes, leave. There's no onus for you to stay any length of time. Go in, have a cup of tea. There's usually really nice cakes and food, <laughs> which is like the, yeah, everybody loves to go for the cakes. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's very relaxed and very casual and you can participate as much or as little as you want to. Yeah. But I've seen cases where people say, I, I'm not ready, I don't want to do that. And then they go, we'll just try it out. And then all of a sudden they're there every week and they've, they're like, I can't believe I met my neighbour. I never realised that they were in the same situation as me. Yeah. And then all of a sudden there's just this growing network of social support, which is really important. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's like a safe space. I mean, actually, the first time I met you, Michelle, was at an Alzheimer cafe it when was. I brought my father. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was, it was just like a safe space somewhere that, you know, he could be mm. as he was without trying to pretend something different. So that's really good advice about all of that. And Pamela and Danielle, would you like to say anything about the identity of the ideas that uh, Michelle has given there about retaining identity? I think it's so important, really, to try and take as much time as you possibly can for yourself. And I know it can feel very selfish sometimes and you do feel guilt. I, I did feel all that. But I also knew that in order to be the best care I could possibly be for my mom and, and, and to look after as as best I could, that I needed to take that hour. You know, and even if I, I wasn't completely comfortable with the care or whoever was sitting where I, I knew she'd be OK for 40 minutes or whatever, an hour, you know, just, just sitting and relaxing. I knew nothing terrible was going to happen. They had my number. They were prepared, like, you know, so I think definitely you need to not be so hard on yourself and give yourself that time. 
both for yourself and both for the person so that you can you can do the best for the two of you. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Danielle. And Pamela, would you? I thought the idea of not pulling all the tasks back, you know, that, that was actually really interesting. And I was thinking back to all of the things that we said, oh, no, no, we'll be doing that. We'll have to do that. And actually do now and not to blame ourselves as we always do, but just could we have made our own <laughs> lives easier and benefited them by not saying, no, I'll do that. And no, they can't do that now. I'll have to. Mm make the tea or, you know, could they have made the tea? Probably. And actually, could we have got a year of not making every cup of tea? Maybe, <laughs> you know. So I think for anybody listening who is at an earlier stage for that possible implementation of, of those tasks, leaving those with the person mm. and encouraging them, you know, but I suppose you're working and often you just think it's easier to do it myself yeah. or for us. Yeah. So but I think that there's I never considered the dual benefit of that. Mm. And so I think for anybody listening, that is extremely helpful and that everybody should try that route. Um, because even just things like I know we buy the paper for my dad and no, none of it's really retained, but surely that process of reading and, and just even that sort of stimulation will will be helpful. So even though you think it might be futile, there is there are things that still should be done, um, even though you might think that they're not relevant. Mm. So I think that that was something I, I wish we had done. So, yeah, for anyone listening, for I, sure. I think that's a really nice idea of buying the paper because it's probably part of a routine mm, he yes. had yeah, as well. And is routine important, Michelle? Yeah, routine and consistency. And exactly as you said, Pamela, like you might think there's not there's no point in doing this, but actually there really is because even stimulation in the moment, if it's not retained, it doesn't matter. No. It's still stimulating the brain in the moment. So anything that you can do that the person is happy and willing to engage with and even multisensory types of stimulation. So if they're able to read something and hold it at the same time or if, you know, any type, maybe cooking or something where you're moving, but also there's smells and tastes that can be really helpful for stimulating the brain as well. So absolutely, you know, doing those th those things and keeping those routines and keeping that consistency if it seems like it might not be beneficial long term, that's not really mm. what you need to focus on. You just need to focus on day to day what can improve quality of life. It can be difficult as well sometimes because sometimes the person just says, I really don't want to do anything. And they might feel like they want to choose to sit and stare at the wall all day. But I would encourage people, you know, if that kind of is starting to happen, try to work around this a little bit by maybe being clearer on instead of saying do you want to go for a walk maybe the person isn't quite clear on what you mean by that mm -hmm. so maybe describe it in a different way what kind of activity you're suggesting maybe do a model of it and really try to explain it in such a way that you're sure the person understands and then of course if they still want don't want to do it that's fine but actually what we've found in a lot of research is that where people are choosing not to engage in activities it's actually that they don't really know or are not confident or are not sure about what's being asked of them and when we change the way the information is presented actually then they're much more willing to engage in those activities. Oh, that's really interesting. Got great advice coming out here now all together. I would have done a lot of that stuff actually with my mom. I used to, I'd get her to do with the carrots, for example, peel the carrots and I'll do the potatoes. Or I'd, we actually done painting together, something we That's hadn't done since since I was a child, probably. But again, I found it from from someone else who was in a similar situation on Instagram. I seen her and her mom painting. And I said, we'll try this. And she loved the beach. So I said, I'll put the beach up on the telly. And the two of us sat and painted. And like, I have that picture now sitting oh, in the dining room. Oh, and like even things she loved doing the washing. So I care to fold the socks. It was just things that made her feel more herself mm. and, and gave her confidence, even 
I sat down, I let her brush my hair to make her feel like my mom, like, oh, like she was yeah. doing something for me. So I, and she was so content doing all mm. those things. Like she, she loved it. I could see how content she was. So it's definitely really important to, like you said, focus on what they can do and find little things that they can do in the day to give them confidence and make them feel more themselves and, and keep those skills for as long as they possibly can. And to give them value as well. Absolutely. They, they feel valued. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's really lovely. All of the advice has been fantastic and thank you all so much. And Michelle, maybe you'd like to just give us the name of that book again. Yeah, it's The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris. Thanks. And I think also maybe um, people might like to go to the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland's website, www.alzheimer.ie, where they can find information about a lot of the other things you've been talking about, Michelle, today. Links to the um, Alzheimer cafes, etc. And also maybe we'll give out the helpline at this stage. So that's 1-800-341-341. So thank you, Danielle, Pamela and Michelle, so much for giving up your time today and for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Judy. This podcast series is kindly sponsored by Hidden Hearing, and we are very grateful for their support so that the lived experience of caring for someone with dementia is heard. To learn more about their work, please visit hiddenhearing.ie.